All right. Uh, a reminder for you that uh, Easter is coming up, coming up quick. Uh, sunrise service is going to be at 630 up on the hill. Good Friday service before that at, uh, I don't even remember, was it 7? Yeah, North Fork Town Town Hall, but I've been saying this for a few weeks. I already forgot what time. I think it's a 7. I think it's 7. Yeah, let's say 7. Um, see, when I schedule evening things, it's always 630. So, I, so you know if something's another time, I didn't schedule it because I always do 6.30 so that I don't have to remember anything. <laughs> I think so. I think 6.30 is a fine time to show up for anything. 6.30 in the morning, sunrise service. 6.30 in the evening, whatever. In fact, tonight, if you come here at 6.30, we'll have a prayer meeting. So uh, come, pray at church, 6.30. We do that every other week. Um, next Sunday is Palm Sunday, and uh, Gustavo's going to be sharing on Palm Sunday, so that's going to be great. Come for that. Uh, today, uh, you picked uh, a special Sunday to come and look at these Corinthians, our brothers and sisters, saints of God. Um, turn to, in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Scan it real quick so you can see how uncomfortable you're supposed to be. And uh, give me a second. I'm going to turn on a fan in here. All you warm people. Uh, yeah, that's right. Here it comes. Um, in, in chapter 5, 1 Corinthians 5, it's a chapter that can be uncomfortable to read if you're paying attention. Uh, if you're paying attention, this chapter will have things that will offend uh, your sensibilities. Uh, 1 Corinthians, uh, you know, is a letter written by an apostle to a church that he loves, to people that he, he knows. Chapter 5 is not something you would want to get in the mail. And, and if we're honest, and let's be, let's be honest, um, if we didn't go through books of the Bible verse by verse the way we do, this is probably not a passage that most, myself included, would jump to as a text for a sermon. But let's go to this text with the proper humility, knowing that the Lord values holiness, that the Lord values purity, and that he has given us passages such as this to lead us, not simply to lead a good moral life or something like that, um, but to actually make us like our Father who is in heaven and to make us more suited to be with our Father who is in heaven. Because at the center of this chapter, which is all about sexual immorality, it's just the, the worst, it, that's what the chapter is about. At the center of this chapter in verse 7 is the theology of forgiveness and atonement by blood. Right in the middle of the chapter, Christ is presented as our Passover lamb. It is he who we are here to encounter. It is Christ himself who we are here to listen to. So let's go to his word, chapter 5, 1 Corinthians. We're going to read the entire chapter, which sounds impressive, but it's only 13 verses. So let's read it. Chapter 5, verse 1, it says, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and such sexual immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles, that a man has his father's wife. And you are puffed up, and have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you? For I indeed, as absent in body but present in spirit, have already judged, as though I were present, him who has, done, who has so done this deed. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Your glorying is not good. Do you know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Therefore purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, since you truly are unleavened. For indeed Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Therefore let us keep the feast, not with the old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people, Yet I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world or with the covetous or extortioners or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of, the, out of the world. But now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. For what, I, what have I to do with judging those also who are outside. Do you not judge those who are inside? But those who are outside, God judges. Therefore, put away from yourselves the evil person. Jesus, we ask for your spirit to grant us wisdom and insight into your eternal word. We ask for humility, that we would not be quick to avoid things that you may be speaking to us. Um, We pray that we would be receptive of what you would have to say to your church. And we pray for spiritually enlightened vision so that through all of this, we would really have eyes to see a father's heart. We would have eyes to see a holy God and a desire, an overwhelming desire to be holy even as he is holy. We thank you for giving us not only that desire, but the avenue towards holiness through the cross. We ask you to bless this sermon, our time here as a church. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Uh, So far, as you know, in the book of Corinthians, Paul has addressed the Corinthians' divisions and their their arrogance, right? Their preferences uh, for a kind of intellectualism over a humble unity, which is what the church should be, a a united group of humble people. The church was divided, and they were proud about it. Uh, But that wasn't the end. That was not the last of their problems. Chapter 4 ended with this plea from Paul to the church to recognize Paul's authority, not as a teacher who says nice things, uh, but as a father who loves his children. And in verse 18 of chapter 4, he said that there were some people who were puffed up, or they were proud, they were arrogant, and they were acting like Paul would never come and put things in order. They were saying, he's not going to come here, and we're fine. Our behavior is fine. There's grace for this kind of thing. Paul's not going to come and correct any of this. And so in this letter... Paul uh, gives this plea saying, hey, can you shape up before I get there? He says, can you put things in order yourself so that when I, when I do visit, it can be a nice visit? When I come, can, can it be a father visiting children instead of me spending all my time scolding naughty kids? I'm like, that's, that's not a good reunion. And that's how chapter four ended. You can read it there in verse, um, uh, what was it? Eight, uh, verse 20 it says, what do you want? Or 21, yeah, what do you want? Shall I come to you with a rod or in love and a spirit of gentleness? You decide. And so now in chapter 5, you can see why the rod might come in handy. The rod had been spared in Corinth, and the children were being spoiled like old milk. Okay, It's starting to smell in Corinth. Paul is wanting the church to take care of its own problems. 
maintain holiness in the community. And this idea that the church should be mature enough by now, healthy enough by now to take care of its own issues without seasonal visits from apostles. That's going to be addressed more in chapter 6. But here you see the size of the problems they were dealing with and how they had been entirely ineffective in dealing with them thus far. The first verse tells us what the problem is. And verse 2 tells us about the problem they were having with the problem. Verse 1 is the wound. Verse 2 is the infection because the wound was never cleaned. And now Paul is bringing salt. And it's going to hurt and clean things up. Cleansing, painful, salt. He says, it's actually reported that there's sexual immorality among you and such sexual immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles that a man has his father's wife and you're puffed up? This is verse two. This is the problem. This is the infection, right? And have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. So he says there's, there's such sin and describes what the sin is. It says this isn't even named among the Gentiles. Now, Corinth is in Greece. It's a Gentile city. There were Gentiles there. So what's he talking about with Gentiles? Well, Gentiles had come to mean outsiders, the pagan culture, the unsaved. He's talking about unbelievers. Many of the people in the church were literal Gentiles. But having been saved and brought into the church where there is neither Jew nor Greek, they, they, the early church continued in a sort of identity of the new Israel. And the church throughout the ages has seen itself as a sort of fulfillment of Israel or true Israel with Jesus as the son of David, our true king. In Ephesians, Paul writes to the church about their conversion, and that's a Gentile church as well, Gentile and Jew mixed. And he says, before you were saved, you were outside the commonwealth of Israel without hope and without God in the world, Ephesians 2.12, implying that all those who are saved are now brought into this new reinvented Israel called the church. So who are these Gentiles whose sins aren't as bad as the ones being practiced in the Corinthian church? He says, your sins, they're not even named among those in the outside, the, outs the Gentiles, the unsaved. Um, the Gentiles he's talking about here, loosely defined, it's the Greco-Roman culture of Corinth. So they were literal and figurative Gentiles. Now, the main culture at this time in this part of the world, it was, it was Roman, which, of course, the Romans borrowed much of their culture from Greece. Corinth was a very Greco-Roman city with a very Greco-Roman culture. And in ancient Greece, uh, you see this in the, the classical plays, uh, the Greek plays and poetry and stuff like that. There were two sins that were seen as just absolutely the worst. Ancient Greek culture was very perverted but they still managed to consider at least two things as evil and really evil. Two evils that, if committed, separated a person from society. They were identified as less than human. They're basically animals at this point. And the two sins were cannibalism and incest. And honestly, good job, Greeks. I think those two things are bad, too. Like, we're all on the same page. Absolutely. 100%. Uh, the classic Greek tragedy was Oedipus Rex. A king so famous, he had a complex named after him, right? What's the tragedy? What's so sad about Oedipus Rex? Among other things, the king finds out that he accidentally married his mom. That's the story. That's what they went to the theater to see. And when he finds out, when he finds out, his, his wife mom kills herself and Oedipus plucks out his own eyes. Sorry to ruin the ending. It's been around for 2,500 years. You should know it by now. You could have, you could have. So as, as bad, as, as morally corrupt as these cultures eventually became, 
that Paul, you know, preaches against in a variety of places. We see this even in the New Testament. But at the time of this writing, the idea of a man having this kind of a relationship with his father's wife was unthinkable. It was literally the worst thing a person could imagine right alongside eating people. But in Corinth, you didn't have to imagine it. You could just go to church at 10 o'clock in the morning and meet a man who was having a relationship with his stepmother. Now, we could go to Leviticus 18 and see why, you know, this is against the Mosaic law. And you can go to other, you know, Greek plays or pagan writings to see that this was against the moral sensibilities of the day. But do you really need to? Like, no. I mean, you can recoil at this purely on the basis of common sense or common morality. Everything in a person should say, this is clearly a line that has been crossed. This is obviously a bad idea. But Corinth was a special place where this kind of behavior apparently was something that could not only be overlooked, but encouraged. And while the problem in verse 1 is very serious, the problem behind the problem, which is seen in verse 2, it shows that the real sin was not that the sin was gross, it was that they didn't think the gross sin was gross. Read verse 2 again. He says, And you're puffed up, and have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. No one plucked their eyes out like the guy in the play. No one despaired of life. No one even mourned. They were actually pretty proud of themselves. They were saying, look how tolerant we are. We are the most accepting church in the world. How welcoming and modern we are. Now, listen, we're, we're kind of wired and trained to look for personal application when we read the Bible. Hopefully you don't find it in verse 1. Um, there... There might be something for you, though, in verse 2, okay? Because this is one of the ways, one of the many ways where a sin can become a deeper sin because it's been mishandled. It hasn't been dealt with. It's, it's the way the wound gets infected because it hasn't been treated. We are prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God we love. But it is not uncommon for the evils that we have made ourselves comfortable with to be sins we find easy to excuse or laugh at. And that's just a puffing up when we should rather mourn. The correct response to sin in your life is first sorrow. That's repentance, godly sorrow that leads to repentance. There's a godly kind of misery that sin puts us in because it drives us to repentance. But we have, we have our light sins, right? Sin, diet sin, you know, half the calories is the big ones. Those, those sins, slander of others, gossip, laziness, gluttony, greed, uh, loving an argument at the expense of unity, loving self at the expense of serving, loving money at the expense of the poor. These are sins that are easily, easily boasted about. All far, far smaller, perhaps, than the sin mentioned in verse 1, but they remain things that if we see them in our own lives, we are much more likely to defend them with a chuckle and a lousy excuse than we are to mourn for them and repent with fasting and tears. You see then that when, when the sin, the wound, is left untreated or worse, when it's boasted in, it becomes a greater sin and then more are affected, more are culpable, more are damaged. The entire community of the church was being pulled into this vortex of this sinning couple because they were all now guilty by approving of the sin. The sin in the church of Corinth, the one about the people and the unlawful relationship, was obvious. But the life-threatening part for the entire community of the church was how everyone dealt with this sin because they saw a real sin as something to be excused 
rather than rebuked. Um, or, or they even saw it as something to be encouraged. And so then the sin multiplied and spread into the entire congregation, as yeast does in dough, as each one was allowing this to continue unaddressed. Well, Paul is now going to address the problem. Verse 3, he says, For I indeed, as absent in body but present in spirit, have already judged, as though I were present, him who has done has so done this deed. A note here, this passage is about excommunication. It's not about going to church on Zoom. Just thought I should let you know. The only way you can be absent in body and present in spirit is if you are passing a judgment and you sign the dotted line and it has that authority. You can't actually go to church and be like, I was with you in spirit. No, you're not. It's in your body. That's where your spirit lives. That's the only way your spirit actually moves around is in this two-legged thing that you, you walk around. Okay. Anyway, Paul is saying he's present in spirit, meaning his authority is there. I am passing judgment. I am, I am proving uh, this to be wrong with this letter and my signature on the dotted line. Verse 4, he says, In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together, along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. This is a passage about excommunication. Now, you have to notice this, and it's something I've been mentioning in past sermons. We've been kind of warming up to this chapter because you know I've been looking forward to it. It is not Paul's thing to just condemn a person in the church. Like, that's not how he sees his ministry. That's not his, his drive. It is Paul's will, and it is God's will to justify the ungodly. That's the main point. And a lot of the ungodly go to church. The proud, unrepentant sinner is still a person who God will pursue. And he'll do so with some of his more aggressive tactics. Specifically, God will use Satan to destroy a person in order to bring him to an eventual hard-won salvation. Again, it is the will of Paul that this couple in the church be brought to repentance and saved and forgiven and welcomed and then celebrated. You need to see that these two things, this idea of Paul saying, cast him out, excommunicate, we're done, don't even eat with him. That excommunication and mercy are not opposed to each other. The discipline is for training so that they may learn. In 1 Timothy 1 verse 20, Paul mentions two other guys that he had to kick out of church, uh, Hymenaeus and Alexander. And he says, whom I delivered to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. It was for learning. Says they won't listen to me anymore. So they're not learning with, with words and conversation and rebuke in the church. They're going to learn through the school of hard knocks. Paul seems to address this same person that we read about in chapter 5. So there's this couple, right? There's a man who has his father's wife. Well, this isn't the last we hear of this character. And I think it's a mercy on this man that his name isn't included, don't you think? It's nice that he's not named in Scripture. Um, but in 2 Corinthians, Paul writes back to the Corinthians. Chapter 2, verse 7, then reading out of the ESV here, he says, So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. This is the heart behind all this chapter, behind all this talk about excommunication. The heart is that you would be able to find this person in a place where you can reaffirm your love for them. Don't overwhelm this person with excessive sorrow. But we have to understand this heart of Paul in chapter 5 is not contrary with the heart of Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. The, 
this heart of, of reaffirming love is not contrary to the seemingly harsh handling of excommunication. We know from the book of Hebrews, God himself chastens or punishes every son whom he receives. And so Paul, in the name of Jesus, with his apostolic authority, commands the church to cast out the unrepentant sinner. Why? And what does that mean? Verse 5, he says, Deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. What's the end game for Paul? Is he just like, I hate sinners, and I don't like that they go to my church. You know, is that like, is that his whole point? He's just like, smaller clubs, guys, smaller clubs, you know, only the holy people meet here. Obviously, you, you're five chapters into 1 Corinthians. You know that's not what he's talking about, okay? What's the end game? That he might be saved. His salvation is in danger here. He's, this man is believing a false gospel. It's a gospel that says, sin as much as you want, so that grace may abound. And he says, no, we have to preach the right message. And this guy can't be allowed to continue believing a message that will not save his soul. There's something here in Paul's theology I want you to see. The apostles all agreed that the world was under the sway of the wicked one. Okay, anyone who has ever watched the news has agreed with them forever and ever. Amen. Okay, it's Satan's domain out there. The church is meant to be a microcosm of the new creation where all things are made new. To be cast out of the church community is to be delivered unto Satan. This should teach you a couple of things. One, Paul had a very high view of the church. He says to be here is to be insulated from that. To be saved is to be in the church. He had a very high view of the church, and we can follow him in that. But two, not as clear, but still seen and I think needs to be mentioned. If Paul sees that the church is this microcosm of the new creation, this is where you are protected, essentially, from Satan's domain. The one who self-isolates from the church is essentially excommunicating themselves and voluntarily placing themselves in harm's way. That's serious. It is outside the church where Paul says Satan will work towards the destruction of the flesh. Now that's confusing and could mean a couple different things. Paul uses the word flesh in different ways. When he Same word, he uses it different ways in, in his letters. Paul is, uh, sometimes he talks about it as the, the body, the flesh. Sometimes it's the fallen sin nature right? Your, your carnal desires. Paul is hoping that this person who left to their sins and all the consequences thereof will uh, be driven out now from the church and, and will eventually see the weakness of their sinful lusts. He's not saying Satan will give him a, a disease and he will waste away and his body will be destroyed. That's not what he's saying. He's saying Satan will work towards the destruction of this man's flesh. Paul is hoping to bring these unabashed sinners to the place of the prodigal son when they realize that what they're eating is food for pigs. The flesh has been destroyed. There's no strength left in it. He's giving the sinner a long leash and letting them run themselves all the way to rock bottom. Why? That his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. I believe this is what may be called tough love. It's something that Paul was pretty good at. Paul was the guy you remember who said, oh, you've got someone in your church who won't work? Well, then don't let them eat. That's 2 Thessalonians 3.10. The thinking here is that eventually he'll get hungry and realize laziness isn't all that is cracked up to be. The sinners in Corinth 
are enjoying all the benefits of a holy life, a pretend marriage, fellowship, partaking of the Lord's Supper, the graces of the church, and experiencing none of the ill effects of their sins. Paul is saying, send them out. Send them out with their worldly appetite. They want to live like the world? Let them in the world. Send them out, that worldly appetite, the carnal appetite, let it run its course. Eventually they'll see that what they like to think is sweet is poisoning them. And when they do, they'll come back to you for medicine. And then in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, he says, give them the medicine. Reaffirm your love for them. Welcome them back. Don't overwhelm them with grief. 2 Corinthians 2 gives us hope that this is actually what happened with this couple. There can be salvation at the other end of rebuke. In fact, that's the purpose of rebuke. James, he says that we're saved by the implanted word. The implanted word is able to save your souls. And we know from Timothy that the word is profitable for correction, among other things. The purpose of all of this correction that Paul is bringing is explicitly stated in verse 5. It is that his spirit may be saved. That's it. That's the point. And now he's going to go into a really cool picture of how that salvation battles sin and in an appeal for holiness and purity within the church, he's going to offer an explanation of how sin wars against the saved. In verse 6, he says, Your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Therefore purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, since you truly are unleavened. For indeed, Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. He says, your glorying is not good. Don't brag about sin. Don't tolerate sin, even little sin, because sin is like yeast. It doesn't take much. Throughout scripture, sin is compared with yeast. Beware the leaven of the Pharisees. Remember that? When the Israelites left Egypt after Passover, which is what Paul is drawing our attention to here, Passover, when they left, they were to leave all their leavening in Egypt, representing the abandonment of Egyptian sin. The lump he's talking about, that's a lump of dough, right? You put a little bit of yeast in the dough, the yeast spreads throughout the dough. And the thing about yeast, it grows fast. Did you know a yeast factory is a thing? I don't know if you can do tours or not, but some, someone's got to make the stuff, right? It comes from somewhere. And people have figured out the quickest way to get yeast to reproduce and grow. And in the right conditions at a yeast factory, a 10 milligram starter culture, about this much, can grow to 150 tons in a week. You're in the wrong business, guys. You're in the wrong business. You should be selling yeast, obviously. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. Don't leave any. Get rid of it all. Get rid of the sin. Purge out the old leaven, the old way of life the sin of the past, the sins of the world, so that you can be new, which is exactly what God did to Israel when he brought them out of Egypt. At Passover and the events that followed, Israel was created. It was the formative event of the nation. And now Paul is telling the church, we were created the same way. We, Christians, the church, we were, we were identified by a bringing out of the world, a redemption from Egypt, so that we should no longer resemble the world and its sins. We're not supposed to look like that place. More importantly, just as Israel was saved quite literally by the blood of a Passover lamb, so also every Christian who has ever been saved, even more literally, even more fully than Israel was ever saved, we are saved by the actual blood of the Lamb of God right there on Passover weekend. 
Indeed, Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Now we'll get to talk a lot more about this idea of Christ as Passover lamb when we get into chapters 10 and 11, and Paul talks about the Lord's Supper. Um, It was that night when Jesus reinvented and fulfilled the Passover. He remade the Passover with himself as the meal, and we celebrate that in communion. But the main point Paul is making in chapter 5 is that just as there was a purifying in Israel for their original Passover, so there is also a purifying in the church as we celebrate Christ, the real Passover lamb. The church has always fought against legalism on the one side and libertinism on the other. For the Galatians, it was legalism, right? That was the, that was the risk they were running into. It's like, I'll follow the law or else you're not saved. To be saved, you must then follow the law. Then you might be saved. That's that. their kind of legalism. Paul says, no, thank you. The Corinthians were on the opposite end of the spectrum. They say, we're saved. So that means there are no more laws. Now, the gospel, the gospel corrects these errors. It is what James calls the law of liberty. It is possible and it is necessary to believe that while no works are required of you in order for you to be saved, saving faith works. Saving faith absolutely must work. Your purity doesn't save you, but if you're saved, purity is expected of you. Purity follows salvation. So Paul says, since Christ is a better Passover lamb that brings a better salvation, the purifying in his people should extend beyond their baking. We're not talking about that kind of leaven anymore. Verse 8 again, he says, Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness. You're like, oh, you're not actually talking about yeast anymore. No, I'm talking about your sins. But with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. He says, you Christians ought to be holy when you are coming to the table of the Lord to partake in this new Passover. You have a cleansing that is required of you. Check your conscience. Have I sinned against anyone? Has anyone sinned against me? When Paul gets to chapter 11, he'll talk about this and he'll say, the one who takes this uh, unrighteously eats and drinks judgment on themselves. So you need to examine your heart before coming to Christ. Paul makes all of this clear. He says, you ought to be holy. That's not legalism. To say God's people should not be wicked, that shouldn't surprise anyone who's met God. It is in no way whatsoever opposed to grace or gospel. The law without the gospel is death. Paul makes this very clear. But the gospel does not say, don't be holy. It says, come with me to holiness. You are not alone. You're not unarmed. You are being equipped for every good work. John Bunyan of Pilgrim's Progress fame, he wrote this little poem uh, about himself. He says, run, John, run, the law commands, but gives neither feet nor hands. Better news the gospel brings. It bids me fly and gives me wings. Yes to that. Those who reject holiness as legalism are rejecting the offer of flight. And you can just hear the Corinthians saying, well, Jesus loves us no matter what we do. So you know, that means I can do whatever I want. And after all, God wants me to be happy. How dare you put on me your archaic, outdated ethics, telling me what I can do with my life. That's legalism. No, it's not. It's not actually. That's not legalism. That's not what legalism is. 
You keep using that word. I don't think it means what you think it means. Okay, no. Christ's call to holiness, his call to come and take up your cross to follow him, even his call to be holy as God is holy, this is a call to freedom. And, and all this leaven imagery, Passover imagery that shows up in chapter 5, that's all from Exodus, right? What's Exodus about? It's about freeing slaves, literally. The call to holiness that Paul is making here is a call to freedom. And the ones in Corinth who are continuing in unrepentant sin and boasting about it, they're slaves, now, Paul writes about this extensively in Romans chapter 6, which I'd recommend you turn to. I think the best way to understand his appeal to the Corinthians is actually just by reading that passage from Romans chapter 6, straight through. Um, you can turn there if you like. Romans 6, um, in verse uh, 15. Paul writes, what then? Shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? Certainly not. Now, couldn't that have been written to these people in Corinth? Verse 16 says, do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one's slave whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness? But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. That's the gospel. It's long form for gospel. Verse 18. And having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. Now, if Paul had known Bob Dylan, he would have quoted him here and said, you're going to have to serve somebody. It may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. He says, I speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves of uncleanness and of, unlawless, of, of lawlessness, excuse me, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. You didn't have to do the right thing. You know why? Because you, were, you weren't saved. You were out there living your own thing. But now, uh, I lost my place. Where was I? 21? I'll do 21. What fruit did you have then in the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. And here's the part I think the Corinthians would have really needed to hear. Verse 22. But now having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness and in the end everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Oh, you know that last one? You've heard that one? Okay, now you know where it's from. There you go. He says, he says the, the fruit you have now, you become a different kind of servant with everlasting life at the end. That's where I want you to go. This is the path I want you to walk on. And you see this idea of slavery versus freedom. That's what Paul is thinking about when he's addressing these problems in, in Corinth, talking about the Exodus. That's what he's thinking about when he presents this call to holiness. There is freedom when you realize the Lord is the best master you can have. Paul wants these individuals to, who are in sin, who are slaves of disgusting sin, he wants them to be free. The lesson they're going to have to learn is a hard one. The, the lesson they're going to have to learn is through hard methods. The methods are harsh. Excommunication, as Paul describes it, hurts. But the goal is salvation. 
Now, the holiness that Paul wants for those individuals is also the holiness he wants for the church. That, and just like the sin was with this man and, and this woman, the underlying sin was the way the church failed to deal with it. So, in hoping that these individuals pursue holiness when their flesh, their carnal desires are eventually destroyed in the world, so Paul is also hoping that the church deals with its sin and pursues a corporate holiness. There is something that Paul has... Uh, sorry, this is something that Paul has apparently already addressed in his earlier letters to Corinth. Look at verse 9. He says, I wrote to you in my epistle, that's the one we don't have, I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people. Yet I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world or with the covetous or extortioners or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. Now, are you getting what he's saying? He's like, I, I told you not to, not to hang around sinners. I obviously didn't mean the people out there because everyone out there is a sinner. So, so I, I didn't mean don't eat with bad people. Like, bad people is all God made so far. Like, since, since Eden, you know, there's that one guy and they killed him. So, like, there, there's all, I'm not saying don't have friends outside the church or something like that. That's not anything that I, that I mean. He says, but now I've written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. For what have I to do with judging those also who are outside? And that's an important thing. Paul says, I don't care what they're doing outside the church. They're, they're unregenerate. I'm not gonna, I don't need to judge them. God will judge those who are outside. Do you not judge those who are inside? This is your family, your church. These are your rules. You need to follow them. But those who are outside, God judges. Therefore, put away from yourselves the evil person. There's a very important detail when you talk about holiness and putting sin away from you, and especially this touchy subject of not even eating with certain people. Paul is not talking about unbelievers. He is not suggesting that the church isolate itself from society. He expects people to eat with people. Church people eating with not church people. All that, okay, that's, that's the obvious way they're going to live their lives. He expects you to eat with tax collectors and sinners, you know, whatever the equivalent is of your day. Paul, the former Pharisee, is not making the mistake of the earlier Pharisees in Jesus' day who took issue with Jesus hanging out with all the wrong people, right? No, we are absolutely to spend time with those outside the church. But when you have a person, a friend, who claims to be a Christian, and does not repent of open and egregious sin, that's your invitation to make new friends. You know that we preach the gospel with our lives. Okay? We preach the gospel with our words and, of course, our actions. The one who says that they are a Christian but continues in unrepentant, blatant sins of the kind Paul mentions here is preaching a false gospel. Okay? If we have someone come to our church and is, is speaking, is, is sharing at things, and they say, well, Jesus wasn't really God, or they say God's actually five people, not, not a trinity, it's, it's five, or they say Jesus never existed, or they say you don't need to believe in the virgin birth or the resurrection or anything like that. You know what? They don't teach here anymore. They don't teach here anymore. All of you are teaching with your lives. Everyone teaches with their lives. If a false gospel is being preached by an unrepentant, boasting about sin, life, that person must be removed because it is a false gospel being preached in your church. And Paul says, don't even, don't eat with such a person. Now it's assumed here, I think, that 
The principles of Matthew 18 would have been followed, the sending person addressed again and again and again and brought before the community, the church. Paul, it, apparently it's reached that point in Paul's mind. And he says it's time. They need to go and, and learn from a different school. They would be finally excommunicated. Now when I say finally excommunicated, we must again be reminded that it's not final. That that's not the finality that Paul is hoping for. Getting rid of sinners is not the real ministry of the church. Having this particular couple in Corinth removed from the congregation was not the end that Paul hoped for. It was a necessary means to the greater end of repentance and reconciliation and holiness and purity. The purpose of Paul's correction was not to push people away. It was to bring people into a kind of holiness that their sins prevented. So their sins had to be dealt with first. Paul's correction was for the church to cleanse the leaven. The problem is once leaven gets into the dough, you can't take it out. At least I don't know how. Once it, once it got to this point, you couldn't take the sin out of the church without addressing the sinners. Now you have a wonderful and difficult opportunity to examine your hearts. Because if you can still identify sin in your life, you can still repent. Today is the day of salvation. If you're unwilling to do this hard cleansing of bringing your sins to a Savior who cares, then the Lord who loves you will employ a variety of methods to get your attention to clean you up to save your soul. Our work is to believe the Lord. So in your belief, do not doubt the seriousness of sin. And then do not for a second doubt the seriousness of your Savior. He will pursue you with any means necessary in order that your soul may be saved. It is always his intention to bring you to himself. Let's pray. Jesus, we worship you. We love you. We thank you that you do have a gentle hand. We thank you for being patient with us, being kind with us, we pray for holiness in our church and for a desire um, for a desire to be clean in your presence. Jesus, we thank you for this word and ask that it would have its full effect in your church, that, that every uh, warning for us would be, would be heeded, that every command would be obeyed, and that most of all, Lord, Christ would be exalted in our hearts and that our love for our Savior would outweigh any lust for sin ten times over, a thousand times over. We thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your spirit. We ask you to bless us continually in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please stand. Let us bless the food in song. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him all creatures here below. Praise Him above the heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Amen. That's it. <laughs> You're sent. <laughs>